Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai, I am your host, delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. A one-stop replacement for your cloud. That's always been the promise of own cloud, and they're taking it to the next level. Now, I have had my differences uh, with, when it comes to NextCloud and own cloud as far as actually hosting files, because what I found in the past was... Sometimes you would set up a NextCloud server, actually really started back in the day of OwnCloud. You'd set up an OwnCloud server, you'd put a bunch of data on it, and as that data was being pushed around in the back end because of some of the design decisions that they had made, sometimes you could lose your data, particularly if you had large files. Now, at the time I was doing a lot of video editing and had a very large file size, and I still do a number of things that require me to utilize large files and so for for syncing those files around i have moved over almost exclusively to c file nextcloud has come a long way and they have continued to improve their file syncing uh system to the point that the the last instance that i have of nextcloud i'm proud to say that i've not lost any files i've not had any problems with syncing files around although i will have to say that i have still not seen any major Design changes, so I'm not sure if that's, you know, is it, is, it, uh, is it just Murphy's Law? If I put all of my stuff in there that was actually important to me, would I run into a problem again? I don't know. But NextCloud does continue to develop, and they are pushing forward with some amazing new features, not the least of which is their new social feature. Now, NextCloud Social is, again, this idea that we're going to have a one-stop shop for cloud. So one of the most important aspects of any cloud infrastructure is the ability to communicate and collaborate with other people. NextCloud, knowing this, has integrated a feature called NextCloud Social. And it's based off of the a very familiar protocol that you might have heard of called ActivityPub. Now, ActivityPub is the social protocol, as it were, a social standard, as it were, that is used in a number of other competing open source projects, not the least of which might be that you may have heard of, Diaspora, and Mastodon. Now, GDog1985 in the chat room, while having some troubles connecting to Mumble, has done some amazing things for us on the back end. He and, uh, and another gentleman that is part of the Asinos community called uh, named Michael have set up one of the most, if not the most popular Linux open platforms that we have. And it, it, it is called Linux Rocks uh, yeah, I think the domain is it is the uh, is the domain still Linux Rocks, Greg? Maybe in the chat room you can tell me. Um, but essentially, it is a Linux-based Mastodon system that that the community has set up. I actually had no involvement other than I, I think I actually purchased the domain. But other than that, we I I really didn't do anything with it. Um, just LinuxRocks.com, and you can go and sign up for a free account for uncensored speech centered around Linux. Now, the nice thing about ActivityHub is it's decentralized social network. What does that mean? Well, in the case of Facebook or Google Plus or Twitter, you have a central infrastructure that connects 
that you create an account on and everybody then connects to that central infrastructure. The problem with that is if that one, if that central infrastructure ever goes down or if it ever experiences a problem as Facebook experienced a couple of uh, weeks ago, then you have people that aren't able to get onto their social network. But the bigger problem is it puts a lot of control in a single company. The nice thing about the activity pub standard is that if you set up a Mastodon instance or a, dia or a diaspora instance, and you have another friend that has set up a, a Mastodon instance, you two can, you two can decide that you want to uh, federate all of your data. And so all of those posts will be federated around. Uh, LinuxRocks.online, my, my apologies, LinuxRocks.online. I wasn't the only one that made the mistake. It was uh, also me in the chat room. But what this will allow us to do is have this decentralized social experience. Now, it gets even better. Because it's an open standard, because it's the same standard that Mastodon and Diaspora subscribe to, the Ask Noah community centers around LinuxRocks.online. That's kind of where all of these people have decided that they're going to host their social experience. They, sh they show up, they log in, they create an account. We have a good old time talking about Linux. Now, if there's somebody else out there that wants to host in OwnCloud, or NextCloud, then, and they want to feature NextCloud Social, now they have the ability to interface with those of us on LinuxRocks.online. So it's, really it's a really fantastic uh, way and I think it's a really great way to push forward. Now, Nunix joins us, and, and actually, wow, there's a number of other people. Hey, Mumbarum, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. G'day, Noah. Howdy. Hey, we got, audience. A, yeah, we got a lot of people. Charlie Brown, good to see you in here. And and uh, Nunix, two-bit hats. That's fantastic. I'm glad, I always like it when it draws a crowd. Well, thanks a lot. Just uh, go ahead and ping me in the chat room. If any, if you guys uh, say anything, you can ping me in the Mumble Room, too. I've got the Mumble Chat open as well. Again, too, you can join the phones, uh, join via the phone lines, rather, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. This is a major push forward for NextCloud. And what I really appreciate about NextCloud and the NextCloud team is they are aiming, again, to be that one-stop cloud solution. Because one of the things that you run into, and we get this question on the show, you've heard it here. People call and they say, well, what do I do if I want to sync files around? We give them one answer. We say, well, you use file. And then they say, well, what if I want to host my own mail server? We say, well, you might want to check out mail in a box. And what NextCloud aims to do is to be one server that you set up in your house and you're, you're able to host all of your servers. Now, one of the things that we're looking at, uh, one of the guests that we're looking at booking for 2019 that I think is that can provide some really interesting insight because he's a really great guy and, and just a, an all around nerd. It's uh, it's a gentleman I work with at the other radio station and he is actually in charge of their it infrastructure. Now you can imagine how awkward that is for me being, uh, you know, 30 years old, I'm 30, I'll, I'll, I'll be 32. And uh, for the vast majority of my adult life, every it infrastructure I've ever worked in, I've always been in charge of because that's that's our business. If we're there, that's what we're doing. We're managing the IT. So it's the first job for sure that I've ever had where it's somebody else's job to fix the computer. And it is fantastic because I don't ever have to worry about it. Something breaks and I just say, hey, come over here and fix this, right? The other side of that is though, Matt, the gentleman who is the IT guy at the other radio station is insanely smart and very good at what he does. And so it's a pleasure to work with him. And him and I have obviously, we kind of clicked because both of us are just, we're geeks at heart. Right. Like you can you can put me in a different position, but you can't take the geek out of me. It doesn't work that way. 
And so uh, I have had many in the hallway leaning over the counter conversations with Matt. He's, I've come to know him, and he's a really fantastic guy and a very bright guy. And him and I were chatting about the rise that I've seen at Alta Speed Technologies with people wanting to implement servers in their homes and host services in their homes. And you notice every time, and I do mean every time, we bring up a self-hosted service, you can immediately see the reaction inside of the download numbers, inside of the feedback generated by the Ask Noah show, inside of the number of uh, t- tweets and retweets and, and, and interaction on social media. We can see all of that. It's a very hot button issue. And then I see all the money from the Speed technology side, all of the money that people choose to spend on trying to get themselves out of uh, out of uh, 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 off of cloud-based services, off the Google juice, as it were, and all of that tells me that we are we're going we're we're definitely going in the right direction. We're solving problems, and the Ask Noah show has has been at the at the, at the leading forefront of that. And so we're happy and proud of that. So I'm hoping to get Matt on the program, and we're gonna him and I are gonna have a back and forth about the different things that we host in our house, not the least of which is edge devices. Him and I have been going through various different edge devices. And uh, a lot of you are familiar with things like PFSense. And of course, we've talked about the Microtech routers. But did you know that there's actually a whole plethora of edge-based operating systems that are designed to run as a router, edge device, security, gateway, appliance, whatever you want to call it? Lots of different choices for you. So, and the chat room is agreeing with me right now. They say, yep, I do that. Yep, we host, self-host everything. So, uh, and and yeah, so we're going to, I want to dig into that a little more, but a huge, huge congratulations to the NextCloud team for continuing to push forward on open standards and for continuing to move forward with a great product and a great alternative that is really solving a problem in the self-hosted world. Huge thanks. It also leads me to another point I wanted to make and just something I wanted to touch on briefly. Open source software and open standards create a modular technology that is absolutely impossible to compete with. If you look at what Facebook and Twitter are doing and the amount of money that they had to spend to get the success that they have, and then you look at the mediocre success, you know, I mean, nobody's living under any delusions that Mastodon is about to wipe Facebook off of the planet or that Twitter's or Mastodon's about to wipe Twitter off the planet. Okay, but you also can't deny that they ha- that that projects like Mastodon, even projects like Diaspora, which are a real pain to set up, these projects have made way more success than any would anyone would have ever guessed possible. And it's not because that they were led up by some great leader or had some fantastic visionary. It wasn't any of that. It's not that they had a big pocketbook. It's they based it on open standards. And they based it on open source principles. And what that allowed them to do is create a modular technology that cumulatively comes together to to form a cohesive, powerful unit. And it goes through iterations. We had Diaspora. We worked out the things that that didn't work out. Then we went to Mastodon. We had a couple more problems and those didn't quite work out. And now we've gotten to NextCloud Social. And when you install this, when you set this up, when you go through it yourself... You look at this stuff and you go, hey, you know what? This is really incredible. This is really fantastic that anybody can set this stuff up and anybody can can have their they can own their own data on on their own server and not give up collaboration and connection with loved ones. 
So it's the, the, the modularity of open source continues to amaze me and continues to impress me. And companies that, and, and, and people like Frank and the, the, the rest of the team that is working on NextCloud, just a huge thank you to you guys. You're doing absolutely fantastic stuff. Absolutely really ha happy to have you. And, uh, Happy to see and follow along with what you're doing. Again, you can join us in our interactive mumble room, or you can join us by phone, 855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624. Of course, you can email us, live at AskNoahShow.com. Now, our next guest, the Fedora Project Leader on Twitter, at MattDM, and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Matt, welcome into the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. So, Fedora 29 was released a few months ago with the benefit of time looking uh, with uh, hindsight being 2020 looking back um, has is there anything that has that is going any differently than it has with any of the past releases uh, well I think actually yeah, interestingly the adoption curve is very very steep um, I didn't look today but I was tracking our stats the last couple uh, you know days and weeks out of interest I kind of focus on it when new releases come out um, so we don't have any very invasive stats, but one of the things we can observe is when people connect to the mirror network to update their machines. And so we can kind of see by, you know, which directory they're hitting, which, which release they're on. And Fedora 29 is by far the quickest uptake of any Fedora release to date. Um, just the line shot straight up and it actually went up higher than any release has been ever at their peak prior. So it's a very popular release with a lot of interest. So that's exciting. Obviously, there's no way to know this for sure, but if you were a betting man, why would you guess that is? I think we've had a couple really good solid releases, and it's kind of just building up. Um, yeah, I don't, I, there's no particular like, interesting new features or, or publicity about it, and actually, maybe that's it. People are feeling like, okay, there's, I know there's nothing dramatic here, so that's um, uh, comfortable. That might be it. Um, I think you know we've, we've hit on schedule last couple releases and our upgrades are getting pretty painless so i think all those things together make it people confident and instead of saying i'm going to wait two months to see how this is people are diving right in so i'm really happy to see that i i am too are there any particular major features of 29 that you're particularly excited about or would so consider one thing i think it's kind of a behind the scenes thing but it's an important building block for things uh, we have a feature called modularity which it's, it's kind of a confusing marketing around it for which I apologize. But the basic idea is it makes it easy for us as a distribution to package up multiple versions of things. So you can have, say, Ruby 8 and 10 or whatever different versions of things. Those are terrible versions because that's the wrong versions. I mean Node. Node version 8 and Node version 10 and different versions of Ruby. Um, and some things like that, different language stacks, so that previously, basically, Fedora always provided the latest. And on our quick-moving release cycle, sometimes that was uh, too fast. You know, so Fedora changed faster than you were able to keep up with. So um, you know that was one reason people didn't always get to the newest release right away. And other times, um, you were on an older release and you wanted something newer, or a newer release came out mid-Fedora release. So uh, the modular technology lets us provide to users basically different uh, different versions of a stack on that stack's own lifetime rather than on the Fedora lifecycle. So um, that was enabled by default across the board in Fedora, so that repo's there. And it's got some dozen different stacks in there, which um, is a good start and a kind of a building block for the future. 
So that's uh, modularity is obviously a big deal with RHEL 8 as as we kind of venture into the beta and all of that. Talk a little bit about modularity for somebody who hasn't heard that term. What is modularity and what are the advantages? Yeah, so basically it's like a virtual repository. So, you know, a repository is a collection of software and a, a module is a collect is a virtual repository that's within the Fedora package collection that basically has different version streams. So you can have a stream of, like I said earlier, if you were uh, programming something in a, a certain version of the node language, then uh, you can actually follow that version of the stream across for Fedora releases rather than having the node version tied to the Fedora base release. Uh, so it, it's one of the basic things in providing a Linux distribution and an operating system that's hard for people. Um, as users, you know, the distribution never moves at quite the speed you want it to. It's either too fast or too slow. And so this gives us an opportunity to provide things to people at different speeds. So I think that's kind of cool, but it is kind of a behind the scenes feature, unless you are a developer using those languages, in which case um, it's, I think, pretty exciting because you can suddenly have that flexibility. In the past, people have sometimes referred to Fedora as a testing bed for Red Hat. Do you still think that's true or is that kind of a misnomer? So um, I think I, I would call it, call it a misnomer. Uh, Red Hat definitely tests out a lot of their changes and develops their changes using Fedora as a place to land and integrate the work they're doing. So modularity would be an example of something that was developed that way. Um, it's a Red Hat uh, feature that was important for the next you know, RHEL release that, oh, I can say eight now. I've been having to say the next RHEL release for a long time. So wow, <laughs> that's freeing. Eight. Uh, yeah, so uh, that is definitely true, but Fedora is a community project of which RHEL is just one, you know, Red, and Red has one stakeholder, and there are a lot of other things that are important beyond being a test release. So if it were just a beta, um, well, then you wouldn't see RHEL betas, for example. So it's not just a test release, but it is an important aspect of what Fedora is. What do you see the evolution of the relationship between RHEL, CentOS, and Fedora becoming? Because at one time, it was Fedora was kind of bleeding edge, RHEL was stable in commercial support, but then we threw CentOS into the mix. And CentOS provides an interesting dynamic change, right? Because now you have a essentially uh, similar, if not identical, code base to RHEL, but it's also a place where people are probably testing because it's so much more directly compatible with uh, RHEL proper. Um, do you see that relationship changing at all, or do you see Fedora maintaining its own, you know, desktop-like uh, uh, direction and, and CentOS and, and RHEL maintaining the relationship they've always had? Well, yeah, uh, so uh, Fedora is something that is more than just a desktop operating system as well. I know a lot of the enthusiasts and probably a lot of your listeners are most interested in the desktop side of it, which is true. I, I'm a desktop Linux user. It's always, it's exciting to me as well, but especially with CoreOS coming into the family and uh, RHEL, you know, that, that aspect of being a test bed for uh, some things going in RHEL, which are not always desktop features, uh, Fedora has always been a lot more than just a desktop. So, uh, I, I don't think um, Fedora is the desktop thing, and then there's also RHEL and CentOS is the quite the way I draw the picture. I think the thing 
is that uh, Fedora is an upstream project and things flow, you know, development happens in the outside world and it's integrated into Fedora or new features are developed into Fedora and those flow into RHEL. And then CentOS is actually downstream from RHEL as a RHEL rebuild. And then sort of around the operating systems, like applications being developed on top of CentOS that are targeted at RHEL, some of those things, um, some of you know, Red Hat's other products, for example, OpenStack and those kind of things, use CentOS as a development platform because their target is those that RHEL release. Um, but if you're looking at doing operating system development or things that are integrated at the operating system level, Fedora is the better place to work. So if you're you know, coming up with a new architecture, um, there was a neat thing recently. I saw uh, a RAID system that was running the RISC-V architecture, and that was running Fedora on it. So that that's uh, kind of neat for those kind of things. Um, whereas CentOS packages are, you know, uh, they're Fedora packages that have been through the process of RHEL and then come out the other side and become CentOS packages. Um, so I think that that will, that will continue. But one of the things I'd like to see is that the people doing community work in CentOS and community work in Fedora come closer together. And I think that it would be nice if we could, uh, especially with modularity, where we have this idea of having you know, a fast version and a slow version, for example, of a package, I'd like it so that we could easily mix and match so you could have a Fedora version and a CentOS version, even if they're rebuilt, but side by side running on either base. So you have your fast moving Fedora packages running on an enterprise Linux, RHEL, or CentOS base. And then you have those slower moving CentOS packages running on Fedora so that um, we have this um, you know, already existing stream of packages that are already in our ecosystem and universe. And there's no reason why as a Fedora user, you should be locked out of using those. So I think working together with our you know, collaborators in CentOS is a good way to enable that for users. I love that way of looking at it. Do you, uh, do you see Fedora as a production-ready product if somebody wanted to put it into, in, into a production environment for a server or a desktop operating system? Is, is that an appropriate use of Fedora? We absolutely have people using it in that case. I, mean, I use it in production for my own stuff, although I'm pretty small scale, but we have people who are using it in uh, big production for all sorts of different use cases from you know, desktop deployments for their company to you know, server things, to uh, there's cloud deployments, there's a security company I met at Ansible Fest that they're using Ansible and Fedora to deploy into Amazon, uh, the AWS cloud. Uh, so people definitely are doing it in production. I think if you need the long-term support that RHEL gives, or if you need, you know, um, relationships with engineers that are backed up more by more than people doing favors and community support that Red Hat does, so, uh, I'm sorry, that Fedora does, um, you know, you can come to Fedora, you can file a bug, you can talk to people in the project, um, but if you have something that you need to get done by, you know, next, you know, in the next four hours or something like that, a commercial relationship is better. If you have a case where you, you know, have that in-house or you have the ability, you know, uh, where you have the ability to be resilient in different ways, then Fedora can certainly serve in those cases. Fedora to uh, me has always been, um, a leader in adopting technology, right? Pushing the software envelope, being on that bleeding edge. What are some of the current drives in Fedora? 
So I think one of the very interesting things, we have this OS tree technology, which is um, something that came from the Atomic Project. And um, as CoreOS is coming into the fold, they are actually looking at using that for the next version of the container Linux or the, the, um, the Fedora CoreOS that's being built. Uh, so this is a technology basically that treats your operating system like a get tree, like version control. Instead of having a collection of packages, you have a log that's a set of commits that basically says this is this version and you can actually go forward to update or you can roll back if there's a problem um, in a, an atomic sense. So there's you update to one version and then you reboot into it and there's no chance that you know something flaked out in between. You either have the new version or you don't. Uh, which is great for these uh, container deployments in the cloud, but it's also kind of useful on the desktop. So we have a thing called Fedora Silverblue, which is an experiment using that same technology to provide a desktop environment. So you have your base operating system that's provided as a set immutable kind of uh, infrastructure, and then you run your applications on top of that using probably a, a flat pack, kind of a layering technology that puts your applications separate from the operating system there. Uh, and I, sorry, I can keep talking. If you want to ask questions, I can, I can slow down. I think it's exciting. Yeah, no, I'm glad. And I really, I resonate really well with other people, Matthew, that are passionate about their projects, right? I'm a very passionate person myself, love Linux, love open source. And so when I come across other people that are equally passionate, it just energizes us and, and, and amps me up. You know, Fedora, uh, you mentioned Atomic. I'm interested. It's been a while since Fedora started the whole workstation server Atomic paradigm. How do you think the distros, uh, how do you think their efforts have achieved or have they achieved those desired goals? Yeah, I think it's worked very well. Uh, we've got we've got some adjusting to do. I think I think overall, you know, I see the Fedora numbers and stats going up and I see a lot more positive talk about Fedora and growing user base. So I think the strategy has worked. I think we need to tweak it a little bit. We, we previously had Fedora Cloud as one of the top additions and we replaced that with Atomic and that's going to be CoreOS. And we're also adding in an IoT edition as that becomes kind of something we want to focus on. Uh, Peter Robinson, our IoT lead, has done some amazing stuff. And so he has an IoT edition that's also using this OS tree technology, which I think is a really great fit for the IoT use case. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll adjust what the additions are a little bit. And I think um, the previous cloud and server kind of need to be merged together. But um, as we're going forward, I think it's I think it's a good strategy that helps people understand kind of you know what what they want for different use cases that their use case is something we care about and I, I think it's a pretty good approach. Um, everything has trade offs, of course, but um, I, I think with tweaks and adjustments, we'll probably keep moving in that general way forward. Talk to me a little bit about the difference between Fedora Labs and Fedora Spins. Why is it that some things fit in Fedora Labs, whereas other things would fit into a spin? And, and where do you see those fitting into yeah. the overall Linux ecosystem? It, it's funny you should ask. We actually um, has had a council meeting. Fedora, the Fedora Council is our leading, uh, the governance and leadership body for all of Fedora. And so it has um, some elected representatives, some people like me who are hired and some you know, community people who are selected by the communities who represent, like the engineering lead comes from the engineering steering committee and so on. Um, anyways, we had a big meeting in Minneapolis because Minneapolis is very cold this time of year. And so we uh, went to a conference room and didn't come out. So it was mm -hmm. very productive. Um, and one of the things we talked about is you, the different uh, offerings of Fedora and how Fedora works as a project. 
And one of the things we want to do, so with the additions, those are kind of some of our featured showcases for these different use cases, but we really want to support people who uh, are in the community or want to come to the community to solve a problem for a particular use case. So uh, one of the, the, the labs you talked about, the Python Classroom Lab, which is basically a collection of software for someone who's teaching Python to use in a Python classroom. So uh, it's kind of a very use case focused thing. That's not something we necessarily want to say you know, on the top of the Fedora page, download the Python classroom lab because most users, like that's not their use case. But we also want it to be very easy for the people working on that to serve their use case, get it to the people who are interested in that and, and make sure that they can really solve things for that use case very well. So. Going back to your actual question, uh, we've had this kind of differentiation of the additions, the spins, and the labs. And the spins were basically uh, desktop-focused additions, a kind of a showcase for KDE as a desktop or Cinnamon as a desktop or XFCE. Uh, whereas, the, you know, like I said, the, the additions were supposed to focus on a use case, the developer workstation kind of thing. Those, uh, and then the labs also kind of focused on a use case. Um, we find this confusing, so we're you know trying to simplify that in the future. And I think uh, I don't remember what the new wording. We're still working on the new terminology for the different kind of things. Uh, we we call them solutions internally, but I don't know if that's a, that's not a great marketing term. It means too many things and it's too big. But we'll try and we'll try and figure it out as we're going forward. The the basic idea is we want it to be easy for anybody, you, someone else, Fedora community, um, to build different things that they think serve a certain purpose. And then as a project, uh, we kind of, in, from our internal focus is on making sure that the community members who want to do these things have their needs filled. And so uh, different teams, you know, can provide different services. The design team can provide design services to the groups who are interested in these things like Python or robotics or these different use cases, or in you know providing the best KDE desktop they want and, uh, or that kind of thing. You're talking a lot about community. I love hearing about how you guys are coming together for a cohesive goal. Um, what is one aspect of Fedora, either the community or the OS, that you'd really like to see grow or maybe get some more attention? So one of the things, uh, the metrics that I've been keeping track of is like the number of people who are working on Fedora any given week. And so over the course of a year, we have something like 3,000, 4,000 people contribute some little bit to Fedora. Um, although most of that is you know, small drive-by contributions. Uh, and we probably come down to a core of like five, 600 people. And in any given week, uh, there are something like um, 300 people, 200, 300 people who contribute um, a solid amount. Like they're very, they're working hard that week on something or another. So we see a lot of activity. And so that's kind of like the solid line. And I've been watching the number of people in that group who are, have been in Fedora for more than two years as compared to the ones who've been there, been around for a year or two. And then the ones who are new this year and are really engaged in the project. And that the, the little green line at the top of new people is much thinner than I'd like. So basically 90% people who have been around more than two years, which on the one hand is great. You know, we have, you know, people aren't, you know, rage quitting and burning out. And people, we have <laughs> a pro solid project that people care about, which is good. But I'd really like to see more new people coming in and staying. And I'd like to see that, you know, that, that number of, of 
you know, the small number of people coming in has been consistent. So it's not like we're losing out, but I'd really like to see more people encouraged to come into the project. And it's a little bit hard. I, you know, you can tell I'm excited about it, but kind of in the software world today, the actual operating system is way less exciting than it was 20 years ago. Um, and I think this is not just me getting old. I think that as the computing world gets, you know, the th the problems that Fedora attempted to, you know, was solving, you know, the Red Hat and Fedora and the Linux distributions were solving 20, 15 years ago, we did a pretty good job of, and they're they're basically solved. So the problems move up the stack. So they're into clustering and management and Kubernetes and all those kind of things is where like the hot stuff in computing is. So it gets harder and harder to attract people to, yeah, but the fundamental layers, everything is built on, it's still important to you guys. Um, it isn't quite as exciting. Uh, so uh, we have to uh, make, make ways for people to find that exciting and interesting. And this is actually, one of the reasons I'm excited about IoT, Internet of Things, because it's a way that you can get into something that actually it has practical value and is something in a scale, like literally in a scale that you can manage something yourself. Uh, and so I think that's a good way to get people engaged in a new way at the, at the level of things we're working on. I, You know, I, I agree with you. I also think that the technology uh, draws people in, right? Like I was talking with uh, Brandon Johnson, formerly of Red Hat. Now he's working somewhere else. But and we were talking about Cockpit and the things that Cockpit has been managed to accomplish, and the cool draw of Cockpit. It's fantastic. I mean, it really is fantastic. I mean, I've, I've gotten to the point now where I can manage all of my my uh, my libvirt D servers with Cockpit. I mean, just a fantastic thing. And and of course, obviously, being spearheaded in Fedora. I actually, it, yeah, it is great technology. And so actually one of the things, the team that made it is a really great software engineering team and they are really all in on CI and the way they do testing for cockpit is highly automated with a lot of, you know, robot kind of actors in the project. And so we actually have the people who worked on that. Uh, Dominic Perpete is one of the people from the, the cockpit team who's actually working on CI and Fedora. So although I don't remember the cool features from the software itself right now, the thing that is um, important in influencing Fedora is we're kind of bringing some of the methodology that enabled them to make that awesome software so quickly uh, to the project at a larger level. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about Fedora Silverblue. Yeah, so I mentioned it before. Silverblue basically takes this atomic technology, the OS tree, and brings it to the desktop. So I think this is a, a it's, I'm gonna say year of Linux on the desktop, right? Uh, it's one of the ways we can bring an operating system to people that makes it a lot easier to manage and QA because right now, if you have a Fedora desktop or if you have a Debian or Arch or whatever, you've got a whole series of packages on your system and every system very quickly becomes incredibly unique. The fingerprint of packages you have installed, it's, it's like the combinatorics of it are out of control. And so there's no really solid way to say, yes, we've QA'd this system. Whereas uh, with Silverblue, we basically have a stream of constant you know, updates that has an actual, like a hash that's this, this set of packages. And if you have that installed in your system and I have it installed on my system, we have something that can actually be coherently QA'd. And if we put on an update that has a problem, um, first of all, you in the field can just easily roll back to the previous one uh, and it will, no, it will definitely work. 
and uh, as well we can find out what that problem is and we can put out fixes so it kind of lets us uh, do operating systems at a scale that is actually really hard with uh, piecemeal package managers so I think that's pretty exciting um, we're you know kind of looking at some of the options that, that that could bring us in Fedora to put Fedora into places where it hasn't gotten before um, and I think it's also kind of an interesting way to, I was kind of steering that towards the every person Fedora, you know, Linux Fedora user, but it's also an interesting way to work for, you know, developers and power users and hackers, because if you're working in a kind of an all container workflow, so you can work in containers and work with containers and then have your base operating system be this immutable thing that kind of is a layer behind, between, sorry, below, that's the level I'm looking at, the level below the place where you're working in containers and have to basically not worry about it. Uh, it's a powerful way to make that work as well. Absolutely. How about Fedora 30? Fedora 30 is obviously coming up around the corner in springtime. What do we have to look forward to? Um, you know what? Uh, so I think yeah, um, from, from my point of view, the big things that are looking there are we're probably going to have a test version of Silver Blue that will be available to people. I don't think that's going to be ready to be our mainstream thing yet. There's a, a lot of details to work out, but we're uh, going to put some more focus into that. The IoT edition, which again right now is kind of a test thing, is going to be one of our top level editions. And I'm excited about that. I just got a new house and I've got, you know, smart thermostats in it. I got a Rock 960 board, which is a cute little ARM 64 board. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of our reference platforms. And so I'm excited about hooking that up as a smart home controller for my house. So that's my, my own little personal project. But it's also linked into what we're going to be doing in Fedora 30 as an official offering. Uh, I think that's exciting. And then Fedora CoreOS will become our official container cloud innovation platform for Fedora as well. So those are the kind of the top level things that I see there. So I just want to, we, I think we drove by something real quick. So are you saying that that home automation is going to become more of a core part of Fedora? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, you know, IoT is Internet of Things. And so the place where we're looking at, you know, being in IoT is kind of, uh, Fedora as a Linux operating system is not designed to be a really super tiny it's not a tiny micro Linux to actually you know, like run on your devices, um, you know, the Arduino level devices. It's it's too big for that. So uh, I, I think at at some ways, like at some point, there may be something where you have a sensor platform that's running on. Uh, I can't say Raspberry Pi, but it does run on the Raspberry Pi. But our IoT person would really, really, really prefer um, the 64-bit uh, hardware that's. Scaled up a little bit from that, yeah. Um, but but Fedora runs really well uh, as a gateway device or um, kind of an integration point there, um, and then also you know, these little things out in the field. So so, anyways, yes, home automation um, and kind of anything that you want to build on top of an IoT platform. Um, it's not the thing running in your light bulbs, but the thing controlling your light bulbs. Um, Fedora would be a really good choice for that. So in a small, shameless self-plug, podcast.asknoahshow.com slash 104. We actually interviewed Brandon Johnson last week, and this is exactly what he's doing. He's automating his house with Fedora. Um, using OpenHab. And so he's installed OpenHab and have, has it running on a Fedora server in his basement. With, and he, he takes everything to the nines, right? He's got like high availability and OpenStack going on and all sorts of crazy stuff that you wouldn't need to automate a home. But, you know, for him, it's all about being high availability and all those kind of crazy uh, uh, things. I'll have, yeah, I'll have to check with it. Well, you know, if you get your, your, your heating system hooked up, so you're controlling your heating with, uh, the, with your own system, um, 
here in New England, high availability suddenly becomes an important thing, even for it at home, because you don't want an OS crash to suddenly make it so that it's 30 degrees in your house. Well, that's my yeah, very, very unhappy family. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that. You know, you got people trying to turn lights on and off, and uh, obviously. Uh, the way that Brandon has set it up, it's actually pretty ingenious. He's got it set up to all local controls, so even if the automation controller goes down, he just loses some of the automated functions, but he's still got local control over the over the devices. But yeah, shameless self-plug, podcast.snoashow.com slash 104. Check that out if you want to see what more you can do with automation. But I'm happy to see that Fedora's moving forward in that direction. I think that'll be fantastic. How has the IBM acquisition affected Fedora, if at all? So, uh, not in our practical day-to-day things, uh, not at all, and we're not really planning for it to affect us. I think it's going to be good as my personal outlook. Um, you know, uh, the deal hasn't gone through yet. There's a lot of things that nobody can, can say. I think there's been a lot of fear about it, and I think a lot of it is unfounded uh, from, again, my personal opinion, where I see uh, IBM has been a good actor in open source in the past. I remember the peace, love, and Linux thing. Um, so I, th- I think uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think it, it, you know, there'll be some challenges. So I think it brings a lot of opportunity, and I think people shouldn't freak out about it. I saw a bunch of freaking out, and I'm certainly not freaking out. Um, it, and I think it's not just... If you look in the SEC statements about this, like they say they, they actually talk about their commitments to open source specifically, and that's not something they would have had to do. It's something that's kind of in the value... The value of what's happening includes the commitment to open source. So uh, I think that's uh, positive. Matthew Miller is his name, Fedora Project Leader. On Twitter, at MattDM, FedoraProject.org. Matthew, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the Ask Noah program. We'll get you back in the program real soon. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. Open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Let's go to the phones. James calls us from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, um, I'm looking for, I lost my thought. Um, do you know any open source, almost equivalency to um, Dragon Naturally Speaking, which is a text dictation type program for Windows? Yes, sir. So it's interesting. Dragon, naturally speaking, has been around for years and has developed quite a following. I know in both the medical community and in the law community, there are there are people that they will not use anything else. And they have actually designed headsets and little pocket recorders all based around Dragon, naturally speaking. It's a term, it's a program, an application, a suite that I've not heard in some time uh, being away from the Windows world, but we absolutely have all sorts of things and all sorts of tools that you can use on Linux. The one that I have the most experience with is Free Speech VR, and we'll have a link for you, James, in the show notes. Now, full disclaimer, I don't use speech dictation for anything in my day-to-day life on Linux, I do use the Google voice-to-text engine, which is honestly an abysmal failure most of the time, but it does lead to some really funny text messages and telegrams that go up, so I continue to use it. Um, I, do not, I, I don't have any need to use voice-to-text uh, speech recognition on top of Linux, but the one that I've played with is Free Speech VR. It is a, uh, a, a very um, refined program, and has a decent following. I, I again, I'm. I apologize that I can't give you any more information on it. It's I, what I can tell you that it's not in the typical repos. You're going to have to go through a little bit of work to get it running. But it's absolutely if you're if you want to do speech to text on Linux, that's probably 
the the uh, the route you'd want to go. Again, open phones this hour at one eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. A few weeks ago, I talked to you about WireGuard. Now you'll from in fact we've done not one but two episodes on WireGuard. WireGuard is the easy-to-configure, simple-to-set-up, cryptographically secure VPN solution that has come onto the center stage. And the thing that is so exciting about WireGuard is that it's the, the code base is so small and so efficient. And I said, I believe that within a few years, WireGuard will become the next go-to standard for VPN solutions. And what I got in, in response was a lot of opposition. A lot of people out there said, Noah, you're absolutely bonkers. You are crazy if you think that WireGuard is going to compete with things like OpenVPN. Do you know how long OpenVPN has been around? Do you know all of the things that are tied to OpenVPN? Do you know all of the services that utilize OpenVPN and Open? Yes, I do. I do. I got it. I got it. Here's the thing. The thing is that I've set OpenVPN up and I've set WireGuard up. I've set OpenVPN up a lot more times than I've set WireGuard up, and I have a lot more complicated infrastructure running on OpenVPN than I have on WireGuard, obviously, since WireGuard is not technically really ready for production. You know what I found? (laughs) The experience on WireGuard is, like, way better. It's incredible, because WireGuard is so simple, it's literally a function of generating private and public keys. And we have a step-by-step tutorial. If that doesn't mean anything to you, if all you know is that you want to be able to take your laptop and go to a coffee shop, go to a hotel, open up, connect to the public internet, and know that your connection is secure because you're tunneling it with cryptographically secure methods back to your home network, you can set that up with WireGuard in about 10 minutes, less than 10 minutes. We've got a step-to-step, step-by-step tutorial. We'll have it linked for you in the show notes. It's available on YouTube. You can just look WireGuard tutorial, and I'll show you exactly how easy it is to set it up. But to my point about WireGuard becoming the next standard in VPN solutions. WireGuard has, uh, or the Proton Mail team is now teaming up to support WireGuard and WireGuard development. Now, you may remember, or you may have heard that Proton had Proton VPN, and they announced that they are going to hold an auction to give away a lifetime account to Proton Mail the proceeds going to the the further and development of WireGuard. Now, what does this tell you? Because there's going to be somebody out there that says, "So what?" So they're giving them they're giving an email away. They're giving an email account away to support WireGuard. How does that say that WireGuard is becoming the next VPN standard? What it's showing you is that people with competing interests and people that that need a VPN solution to base their business on are putting their vote, putting their money, putting their wallet in WireGuard's corner because they believe that WireGuard is the future as well. GDog1985 has a link to the YouTube to our YouTube tutorial inside of our interactive chat room, which, by the way, you can join at chat.asknoahshow.com. So if you want to add your voice to the conversation, but you don't want to add your voice to the conversation, you'd rather be text, you can join that community. And of course, that community exists 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So even when we're not on the air, you continue to ha- can, can continue to have Linux-related discussions. WireGuard is going to be the future. WireGuard is going to be the future of VPNs. And yes, I understand that WireGuard is not perfect. I understand that we have a long road ahead of us as it relates to testing. I understand that there 
that there are competitors that have way more integration and many more features and all of that. I get it. But understand this. It took those guys like 15 years to get where they are. It took WireGuard a matter of months to get where they are. And they're pretty close. So you already have VPN services that are anonymizing VPN services. So like a, a thing that you would sign up for to anonymize your internet traffic. You don't actually host the VPN. You're VPNing into their servers and counting on them not to keep logs on you. You have services like that springing up around WireGuard or incorporating WireGuard into it. You now have companies like ProtonMail who believe in secure private internet who are backing WireGuard. You have us, the team on the Ask Noah show, the place you go for, for hours of meticulous research so that you can understand and own your technology. And we are telling you that you need to check out WireGuard. So just one more vote in, the, in our favor. That's the way I see it anyway. Again, open phones this hour at 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Now, we talked about this earlier on the show, but Microsoft, in an earlier episode, Microsoft is dumping Edge as we know it. The rendering engine of Edge, which is essentially a, a reinvented version of Internet Explorer, but Internet Explorer got to be the, the, the butt of too many New Year's jokes. So they... Uh, they ditched that branding and went to an equally terrible branding called Edge. They're now going to dump Internet Explorer and Edge for the Blink rendering engine, which is the rendering engine that is used by Google Chrome and Chromium derivatives, we'll call them. This is both a blessing and a curse. I work in the hospitality industry. We support a lot of hotels. And we support a lot of businesses at large. And what you find in those businesses is that most of the companies that design software, particularly for chains, be it restaurant chains, hotel chains, they have centered around web-based software. Because it's too expensive and too difficult and too cumbersome to continue to support native Windows software. What version of Windows are they running? Do they have any sort of mal misconfiguration? Do they have adequate virus protection, malware protection? Have they run Windows up? There's just too many variables. Way easier to bring all of that in-house into a server-side component and just push it out over the web. You're seeing choice hotels do this. You, I mean, I don't want to get into all the names, but the vast majority of software is moving on the web. And that's true definitely in chains, but of course we see that in our everyday to day work life, right? The web has become more prolific. And part of that is just because internet connections themselves have become more prolific. So it's no longer a function of, well, if I ran that piece of software, I would have to dial up to the internet to be able to, to get access to it. It's much easier if I just run it locally here on my machine. And what you find is that most of these companies that are reinventing their software specifically for the web, they're doing it for Chrome because it's the most popular browser out there. And there are a couple of companies, this is particularly true in the security DVR world, where they are they push Internet Explorer and Edge because of all this ActiveX crap, which, by the way, rarely actually works well. And if it does work well, it doesn't work well for very long. But it is something that exists out there, worth acknowledging. So this is a big deal for Microsoft because they're going to dump, essentially, they're going to dump Internet Explorer and Edge. And... Google will now control the web almost exclusively. And this is where we go from being a blessing to being kind of a curse. 
Chrome currently represents 72% of desktop browsers. So 72% of the people browsing the web on a desktop environment, on a laptop or desktop, are doing it with Google Chrome. That's Windows, Mac, Linux, all across the board. Edge, Edge is at 4%. 4 freaking percent. A company as large as Microsoft and the best they can hammer out is 4%. Yeah, I'd say it's time to throw in the towel. My beloved Firefox, my browser of choice, the browser that is powering the Ask Noah show right now, that's at 9%. And then you've got, you know, Opera and Safari and the bazillion other ones that make up the rest. But the point is, as it stands right now, Chrome is at 72%. And you would think, when it comes to mobile, you go out, especially in the United States, we see this. You walk out, what do we see? Half or maybe a little bit more than half of the people are using iPhones and the other half are using Android. Maybe a little bit less than half are using Android. That's here in the U.S. So you would think that Google would be about a split on, on the mobile platform, right? Well, first of all, that may be true here in the U.S., but like anywhere outside of the U.S., iPhones are almost null and void. It's the, 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 the mobile, the world mobile market force is, is heavily in Android's favor. In addition to that, you actually have people using Chrome on iOS because it's a better browser. And so the actual split on mobile is 53% Chrome and 22% iPhone. So Microsoft, by exiting the browser market, is effectively handing 80% of the browsing infrastructure to Google. And that's not a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing from the perspective of us Linux users that want everything to run on Google because Google is cross or Chrome because Chrome is cross-platform. From that perspective, it's an okay thing. But from every other perspective, this is a this is a horrible idea. Google has a, a very nasty track record of inserting itself into creating standards that control the web. Do you know what HTTP slash 2 was based off of? It was originally based off of Google's attempt to replace HTTP with something they called SPDY. And then they took that code base and they took those ideas and used it as a, as a, as a, as a code base to begin the development of HTTP slash 2. You want to know where HTTP slash three came from? That again was Google's QUIC. So they're trying to develop. Oh, and you know what? AMP. Let's talk about AMP. They wanted to attempt a better mobile experience. They wanted to strip down and scale down HTML code so that it would render fast on a mobile device. And so they came out with AMP. But again, these are infrastructures and control mechanisms that Google is putting onto our web. And I think as stewards of an open source community and of open standards, if what I said at the beginning of the program is true, that we value open standards and we value open source, then we have a responsibility and we have a duty to say, no, Google, I don't like the fact that you're inserting yourself into these standards. I don't like the fact that your web browser and your rendering engine and that your code base is going to be responsible for 80 freaking percent of the web browsing world. I don't like that at all. I don't like the fact that you've inserted yourself into the mobile infrastructure as far as you have. And this is coming from the guy, by the way, who doesn't like Apple very much. And I'm the guy that is saying that 
things like Google AMP are it, it, this is not this is not a great thing. And and people are not framing the discussion this way. That is not the discussion that is being had on the, on the internet. If you go out on social media, if you look on Twitter, if you look on Facebook, you look at blog posts, people are thrilled. Internet Explorer is going away. Edge is going away. Microsoft is switching to Chrome. Open source is one. This is fantastic. Linux users rejoice. I, and I don't want to rain on your parade. I really don't. I hope that good things come of this. I hope that it allows for greater Linux adoption. But I have to tell you, I have some concerns. We have just put Google, Microsoft by stepping out, has just put Google in control of a large portion of the web. Now, I don't agree with everything Mozilla does. I don't agree with every stance Mozilla takes, but you know what? They're a very good steward of the internet. They're a very, they're an open company. They hold open meetings. It's an open browser for all. And Microsoft just threw all of their weight behind Chromium. They're going to start contributing money to, to, to Chromium to continue the development of Chromium. So we got to watch this, guys. We have to watch this. And of course, the Ask Noah Show community will stay heavily tuned to this. and will bring you information as it becomes available. But I am not singing my happy dance song, I have to tell you. Our next episode is actually going to be on Christmas. Uh, where I'm going to do an episode on Christmas. And I, you know, the thing is I struggle with it a little bit because, you know, we do a call-in show. Who's going to call in on Christmas, right? Nobody's going to, nobody wants to call in and ask questions on Christmas. You want to celebrate Christmas with your family, as you should. However, when Uncle Bob and Aunt Sue start fighting about politics at the table and you're like, you know, it'd be great if I had an escape and I could go listen to some Linux. That sounds like a good idea. Well, you give me a call. And to sweeten the deal a little bit, our Christmas episode, we did this last year. I'm going to do it again. We're going to do an Ask Noah So special with Ask Me Anything. So you ask me any question you want. It doesn't have to be about technology. Usually I take questions about technology and Linux and stuff like that. Ask me for relationship advice. Ask me for marital advice. Ask me for religious advice. Ask me for dieting advice. I wouldn't recommend you take any of that advice, but I invite you to ask me for that advice next week on the Ask Noah Show. And uh, it's kind of a fun way to celebrate Christmas. And I, I thought about it for a little bit. I thought, why, 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 you know, there's a couple of people that ask me, why would you do a show on Christmas? You know what? I love Linux. And just because it's Christmas, Christmas doesn't mean I don't love Linux. See, now we're getting somewhere. The chat room has just asked me, how do I do FizzBuzz? I am not a developer. I've never claimed to be a developer. And every time I have ever attempted to, to do anything developmental, it turns into a disaster. If you're not familiar with FizzBuzz, what FizzBuzz is, it is a programming exercise where you tell the person, I want you to print numbers 1 to 100 for anything that is divisible by 5. Don't quote me exactly, but something like this. Anything that's divisible by 5, print fizz. Anything that's divisible by 7, print buzz. Anything that's divisible by both 5 and 7, print fizz buzz. And uh, I sat down to, to write that, and uh, it went something like this. Print 1, print 2, print 3, print 4, print fizz, print 6. Print FizzBuzz. Yeah, it just, it just, you know, that's my idea of code. I'm just not a coder. It's not me. Hey, guys, make sure you're checking out the extra credit section. It, that was where all of the articles and references that we made in this episode and the stuff that we didn't have time to get for. Obviously, when we go to prepare a show, we, we take all of the articles that are around the Internet, centered around Linux and open source news. We lay them all out, and then our team goes through them and meticulously researches and says what would be the most valuable to the community, and then we prioritize. Now, weeks like this, we've gotten to a point where we had Matt Miller, on, Matthew Miller on, 
and uh, we just didn't have time to get to a lot of stuff. But you can go read it. You can find out what the rest of those are. You can find that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. If you're not checking out the extra credit session, then you're missing like half the content. We've got big things planned for 2019, and a lot of that is hinted inside of our show notes. Check those out, podcast.asknoahshow.com. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 o'clock p.m. A huge thanks to better producer Sarah, our call screener. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. <laughs>